Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. All right, so last week, uh, last week, Tim walked us through the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It was Father's Day. I'm a dad. Um, I, don't, I, I don't have a dad bod. I have a father figure, all right? And uh, uh, <laughs> so he walked us through Romans 11, 1 through 10. Today, we're going verses 11 all the way to verse 24, all right? So uh, a meaty chunk, I guess you would say. But I um, also want to be up front. If you've heard me speak in the past, um, the book of Romans, we're teaching a little bit differently. I'm not so much giving sermons, I guess. I'm adding a little bit of application and illustration and story, rather just exegetical teaching as I spent this last week. Um, and early this morning, going through some commentaries. Um, I kind of just present to you what the data is. Uh, we learn Greek words and some other fun things together. And then you guys are going to break off into groups in your guys' chairs, couches, or whatever it is in about um, an hour. And no, I'm playing. And hopefully like 20 minutes. And uh, you guys will kind of develop the application and stuff for there. Um, another thing is uh, I go real quick. So I've been told. And uh, if you have any questions, um, there's a number that you should have gotten on that little piece of paper when you walked in. And if you didn't get a piece of paper, uh, you can get one on that little wooden weird desk that we got um, from like a, a place called the Elephant Bar or something like that. Anyways, um, it was going out of business and they gave it to us. But anyways, there's this little w- wood wooden desk that's weird. And uh, if you don't have a paper, grab it. It'll have a number on there. And anything that we talk about today or throughout the Book of Romans or just in faith in general, you can text that. And at the end of your discussion groups, I'll try my very best to answer your questions. So... Today, Romans 11, 11, verses, uh, 11 through 24. Now, before we get to that, I kind of want to pause and just really quick remind us that the book of Romans, chapter 11 specifically, was written to Jews. Now, I'll be honest, most people and most pastors, they skip over teaching the book of Romans, chapter 11, because most of us probably are not Jewish. In fact, raise your hand if you are Jewish. Am I the only? Okay, there's two of us. Okay, so yeah, no one else here has any Jewish heritage or blood in them. Yeah? Jew power, sick. All right, um, I can say that. I have Jewish blood in me. So um, yeah, most people aren't Jewish, right? In fact, 0.2% of the world's population, 0.2% of the world's population is Jewish. And about 1.2% of the American population is Jewish. Now, although that's an extraordinarily small percentage of the world's population, they've had an extraordinary impact, the Jewish people, on, on human history. I'll, I'll give you maybe just one stat of things I was reading. 36% of all Nobel Prizes given in science, mathematics, engineering, economics, uh, uh, all of these important um, arenas of study, 36% of them have all been given out historically to Jewish people. That's, they're 0.2% of the world's population, right? They've had an extraordinary impact on mankind for their good. And maybe the greatest and the biggest um, impact that they've had is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being Jewish, coming out of the Jewish world. And so tonight, I guess the question that we're going to be going through as we jump into the book of Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, is we're going to be answering a question, and that's what happened to the Jews, And why didn't they accept Jesus as their promised king and their forecasted and prophesied Messiah? Now, this is a challenging question that will take longer than 20 or so minutes for me to answer, so I'll do it in a quick way. But there are some complexities in it as well. And the first is that they had some unbiblical expectations for who Jesus was going to be. 
Now, if you were a Jew, if we could hop into a time machine, go 2,000, 3,000 years um, in the past, what they thought their coming king and Messiah was going to look like was like, uh, uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or like, um, if you guys know the bodybuilder, like C-Bum, that guy, Chris Bumstead, coming down on a unicorn, like flexing or something like that, right? Like that's how they viewed Jesus Christ. He was going to crack the sky open. He was going to come down with like a rocket grenade launch, whatever, and he was going to squash the armies of the world and bring Israel back up to a military, political, and economic powerhouse. Not be born as a baby in a dark, damp cave to two poor peasant teenagers, and then, be, then grow up, live 33 years, and then be stripped of his clothes and crucified and flogged and eventually murdered under the Roman Empire. That's not the dude that they're like, yeah, that's it. That's the guy that we've been thinking about for thousands of years, and that's going to be coming. He's going to save the world. Not it, right? It's kind of counterintuitive, right? And so one of the reasons that the Jews didn't, let's say, accept Jesus Christ early on was because they didn't meet, his expe- they didn't meet the expectations that they had for him. Now, I'm going to talk about what these expectations were and why they, they were problematic. But another thing is, although the Jews were surrounded by faith, most of them were not filled by faith. I'm going to say this again, it's pivotal and important. Although the Jews, thousands of years ago, were surrounded by faith, they had the temple, they had Jewish people constantly walking around them, right? they, 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 their whole culture was built around Judeo, a Judeo worldview. So they were surrounded by it. But even though they were surrounded by it, many of them were not filled by it. I think this too is a similar problem that exists in modern day America. We have been so surrounded by faith and the blessings and provisions that come from a society at large of doing things for generations now, God's way, that I think we've become complacent in the blessings and goodness that God has given to our country and our lives, and even more, grown a sense of entitlement towards, <laughs> towards God. God owes us certain things or whatever it may be. I mean, think about the way in which the Judeo-Christian worldview has impacted our daily life. Certain things like freedom, uh, certain things like um, we believe in law, we believe in goodness, we believe in justice. All of these flow from the very character and nature of God himself and have been extraordinarily efficacious or beneficial to us today. But I think we've also believed, I'll say it this way, I think we've also believed that because we've been surrounded by faith our entire lives, we by association have become people of faith. But this is not the case. It's important that you hear this. And one of the things that Paul's been trying to teach us week after week after week after week is this, that until you give your life over to Jesus Christ, you are not filled by faith. A handful of weeks ago, we, we talked about certain passages, that there was a separation between Lord and Savior. <laughs> you know what's crazy is never once in Scripture is Jesus, or is there a commandment that you accept Jesus as your Savior? That's interesting. But how many pastors have you said, now in this moment, if you stand up, if you raise your hand, I see you in the back, you know, whatever it is, uh, if you give your life over to Jesus as your Savior, you'll be saved. You know that's not found, that's not found anywhere in Scripture. There's, not a, there's no verse that says that. It says to accept him as Lord and then Savior. Adonai is the word for Lord. What is Lord? King, master is what the original word was. You can only be saved if you wholly surrender your your life over to him as your master. Everyone wants Jesus to save them from their sin. No one wants him to be their master. And just listen to the way that people pray. I mean, yeah, they use words like father. It's an endearing term, right? But how often do you hear people say, Lord, master over my life? That's a different way to view God, but it's the biblical way to view the way in which we come to surrender our lives over to him. Now, in addition to this, right, the, the, 
There's another reality in which why the Jewish people, I think, didn't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. For generations, much of what the Jews believed started to become ever more, let's say, complex. Now, not because of the word of God, but because of the word of man. Each generation would continue to add words to the mouth of God that he did not attend for. So track with me. Generation after generation, rabbi after rabbi, would continue to add to the word of God. In 39 books of the Old Testament, it was called the Torah, or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books uh, of Scripture written by Moses. And so this was all recorded in a handful of writings, uh, the Talmud, um, the Mishnah, and the uh, uh, Gemara. These are uh, uh, ancient rabbinical writings, rabbinical meaning written by rabbis, that were recorded in a book. And what ended up happening is uh, these rabbinic discussions, these groups of rabbis got together and was like, what do you think he means by we're supposed to rest on the Sabbath? What do you think it means by while we're not on the Sabbath supposed to make a spark? And so they created these kind of crazy rules. I'll give you an example. In modern-day Israel today, on the day of the Sabbath, which is Saturday, on the day of the Sabbath, they have elevators. All the elevators stop at every floor. Can you imagine if you lived on, like, the 47th floor? Like, they just walk, you know? So they, every floor. Why? Because in the Mishnah, there's a record recording that you're not allowed to make a spark on the Sabbath, on your day where you're not supposed to work. Well, if they click the button to the elevator, what does that create? an electric charge and signal that is a spark. And so they've gone this legalistic. Jesus would do things like he'd heal people on the Sabbath and get all the Pharisees just going buck wild, right? They're like, what are you doing? He's like, are you stupid? Like, like <laughs> of course you can care for people on your day off, right? And so the Mishnah, the, the Talmud, and the, uh, the Gemara, or Gemara, all these rabbinical writings that were added on top of God's word and they were actually seen as equal to and authoritative as the Word of God. Wrong. Let me give you an example of how this can maybe happen. Imagine uh, someone uh, a thousand years from now heard one of my sermons on dating. Each and every single year at Young Adults, I do a series on dating, right? And I've given it wild names in the past, like Fifty Shades of something. Um, what other names I've did? Whatever. Some weird names, right? And uh, um, every year I, I, I give certain like like pastoral wisdom and guidance, right? And so imagine that a thousand years from now, someone comes across my sermons on dating, and in my sermon, I say something to the effect that if you're dating and you're not married and you're really having a problem kind of like crossing some sexual boundaries that you shouldn't, it would be wise and prudent of you to create a boundary, uh, a curfew, let's say 10 o'clock at night. Why? Because at 10.01, weird things can happen, right? For most people, right? In addition, I say something like, all right, um, if you're having a problem sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, always stay vertical, never go horizontal, and uh, never, like, you know, go under the covers together and don't flip off a light. <laughs> now, this, in most cases, may be practical uh, advice that may, you know, safeguard you. And in most circumstances, this is wisdom. But wisdom from a human author is not on par with the authoritative word of God. And so imagine a thousand years from now, the Christians or whoever took a bunch of compiled writings and sermons from other pastors and took things like, no, it's a sin if you turn the lights off at 1001 and your girlfriend's in the room. If you ever go horizontal with an, a member of the opposite sex, death. Like, like, and they were like making it on par. That wouldn't be right. But that's actually what happened in these three writings that I told you about, is they were taking these, these, these rabbinic, these pastoral writings, and, and equating them to the authoritative word of God revealed himself in the Bible. That's not how that's supposed to be, right? And so millennia is into this process. You can imagine that the Jews and we if we did this a thousand years from now, would have a view of God that looked nothing like what he originally revealed himself to be like. So Jews showed up on, uh, 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 I'll say it this way, so Jesus shows up on the scene, 
And he like basically kind of gets like catfished, right? The Jews, they were like DMing uh, someone who didn't exist, thinking about uh, uh, and sound, that he sounded different and looked different than he really did. Not because God was actually different, but because they rather they made up a vision of God that wasn't actually accurate. And that was because they took the word of man and inserted it. By the way, modern day cults do the exact same thing. Look, I believe it's important for you to go to church. I'm a pastor. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 46. There's a plethora of don't, don't, don't neglect the meeting. Uh, church is important, right? Um, however, God has given you the very same access to him that I have. Just because I stand on a stage and these lights point at me, I have no closer proximity to God than any of you. But in Christian cults, they actually teach that there's a hierarchy, Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, that you need in Jehovah Witnesses, you need the Watchtower magazine. That's the thing that you need to insert here to be your lens in which you can interpret this. I mean, you can read the same commentaries that I read, all that type of stuff. I just happen to go to school for this and things like that. And you have different jobs than I do. That's really it, right? And so what they were doing is they were taking something as their lens to interpret Scripture, not the other way around, using the Bible to interpret the world around them. Like a set of binoculars, in some sense, the way to look at the world around them. And so... Um, Basically, Jesus shows up, and because Judaism got so off track, God himself, God in Abad, showed up at their doorstep, showed up at the temple, and they didn't recognize him. And that's because for a thousand years now, they were like, bro, we thought you had a six-pack or whatever. You know, we thought you looked different. You know, like, like there was a filter on you for a thousand years now, and then you showed up, and you don't look like what the pastors and priests and a bunch of people have been saying about. I think something similar has happened today, by the way. We don't have too much time to talk about this philosophical ideology called moral therapeutic deism, but it's the idea that we have been creating God in our own image, right? So for, and you read the book of Genesis chapters one and two, it says, let's make man in our image. So God made them in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So they made him male and female. But I think we have been doing, we've been doing the exact same thing. We have just recreated God in our image. God votes like me. God thinks like me. God loves the same type of sushi I like. God loves everything I like. Awesome. We've just fabricated God in our own image. That's what moral therapeutic deism is. That God it doesn't have to be your Lord. He can just be your Savior. He isn't really that interested in your life. Um, hell really isn't. Um, hell is a place only your exes go to, and you're not going there, and you know, you're only going to heaven, right? Whatever it may be. It's a problem because that's just not, that's not, no, no, that's found in Scripture. So I think um, something's happening today, moral therapeutic deism, and a lot of prosperity teachers. What if, let me just ask a question, what if one of the primary ways that God forms your soul is through suffering. Then what about this wing of Christianity called the prosperity movement? And they're teaching that God's just for your wealth and your health and your... By the way, don't ever buy a, a book from a pastor that has his face on it. It's like a no-go. Like I look at it, burn it, just throw it away, right? If there's ever... <laughs> I'm not going to mention, yeah, well, uh, Joel Steen, T.D. Jakes, all these people. Uh, just don't ever, just burn it. If your parents have, burn it. Like, whatever. Buy them something different. So these wealth and health, and you know, God's for your prosperity. He wants you to live in a five-story house, whatever. What if, what if the primary way that God uses, uh, that God shapens our soul is pain and suffering, is the loss of a relationship, is that you didn't get the job, you didn't get the house that you wanted, you didn't get into the degree, whatever it is. Historically, you know what's brought more people to be conformed in the image of Jesus? Romans 8, 29, Suffering. Right? I know more young adults, more students, high school and junior high. I've been a pastor for 13 years. I've known more people that have walked through the doors of this warehouse at the midst of a tragedy or the loss of something that they cared about than like some blessing in their life. 
It's, it's funny, like, uh, sometimes our pastoral team, or my youth staff or the kids staff will, will meet and we'll say, hey, what happened to, uh... I was like, oh, they got a boyfriend. Oh, no, yeah, they got a girlfriend. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Like, they just kind of, like, they were just here to, like, you know, find Mrs. Wright, Mr. Wright, and then, like, then they found that person and they kind of just replaced God, you know. So the prosperity gospel, right, I think is such a cancer because it's presenting a God that's not real. And so what ends up happening is, God, you didn't keep up to your bargains and expectations. You allowed pain to come in my life. You must not be real. And then you have this whole uh, movement of Gen Z and millennials and zennials deconstructing their faith, saying, well, God didn't keep up to his expectations. No, you just never knew God. You allowed pastors to, to form your vision of God that wasn't actually biblical because you were never in your Bible. The Bible says that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, Right? And that's one of the uses that you should be in your Bible, to, to test and approve me. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.12, I believe, or 1 Timothy 4.12, talks about what God's word is useful for. And one of it is for reproof and correction. Even your pastors, the people that get to stand on a stage like this, like, nah, you wrote a book with your face on it, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I'm not listening to you, whatever it may be. So uh, the same, I think, also happened in the early, uh, early Christianity as well. Um, whether it be in the modern era where people adding things to God's word that aren't there, or in the ancient world, the Catholic church was adding tons of traditions to Christianity or to a relationship with God, and putting these traditions and these man-made um, laws on par with the authoritative word of God, and that's a big no-no. And so one of my faith heroes of mine, and we've talked about him before in this series, was a man named Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther Jr., but Martin Luther, um, the, the famous, uh, famed reformer of the 15th and 16th century. And he, he realized that the Catholic Church was like adding a bunch of things that weren't found in Scripture, like indulgences. Like you need to pay the Catholic Church money for them to be able to forgive your sin so you can go to heaven. He's like flipping through the book and he's like, it's not in here. <laughs> it's not in here. That sounds like something man would add, you know, uh, like, like some egotistical individuals that wanted a lot of money. That doesn't sound like God, you know, cares about finances. If he truly is the, the creator of all things, you think he cares about having some more money? No. But people do, right? And so he's looking, and the book that he read that actually informed him to write his 95 theses on October 14th in Wittenberg, Germany, in 15-something, um, was the book of Romans. He read the book of Romans, and it opened his whole life like the Catholic Church has been doing something wrong. And so therefore, he created the five solos of the Reformation, which is if you are in this room today, and you are a follower of Jesus, and you're not Catholic... We thank this dude for this. He created something called Protestantism, just a wing of Christianity that branched away from Catholicism, the Catholic Church, and the Pope, and the bishops, and all that stuff. And so the five solas, sola scriptura, sola is Latin for only. Only God's word, no traditions. Number two, sola fidea, faith, sola gratia. Faith through grace alone is how we're saved. Who saves us? Sola Christus. Christ saves us. For whose glory? Sola dea gloria, for God's glory alone. Those are the five um, solas of the Reformation that changed um, and created churches just like this. Martin Luther famously said something that I wanted to read to you guys about the book of Romans. He says this, the letter to the Romans is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it would be the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better that it tastes. <laughs> He's also famously said that if he could marry the book of Romans, he would. Kind of weird, but anyways. Um, I guess he really liked it. I don't know if I like it that much, but it's a good book. So anyways, so the question, right? So the Jews rejected Jesus. Has Jesus rejected the Jews forever? 
Go with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 11. We get finally to our 20-something minutes into the very first verse. Perfect. Uh, welcome to me speaking. Um, again, I ask, by the way, this is the only time I'm going to be in the NIV is just this one verse. I go to the ESV after that. If you don't know what that means, ask me later. Uh, again, I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble so as, so as to fall beyond a recovery? By no means. This is like the ancient life alert commercial. Like, help, I've fallen. I can't get up, right? So his question is like, look, the Jews seem to have fallen and stumbled away and over Jesus Christ. Are they ever going to get back up and walk back into a relationship with God? And Paul says, actually, yes. He says, have they fallen and they're never going to get back up? And Nephi says, by no means. So here's what this means. God is not through with the Jewish people. God is not through with the Jewish people. Anyone who teaches that the church is now taking the place of Israel actually needs to take a second place and a second look at the story of Scripture. Look, a lot of theology and history, just go with me really quick. Um, a few things you need to know about. One is called the diaspora. What does that mean? Diaspora is uh, it's a word that just means that... that, that the Jewish people were scattered around the world. Now, if you think about it, man, the Jews have gone through a lot of stuff, right? And so it first starts in 1543 BC, 3,600 years ago. If you know the guy named Moses, he led the Israelites out of what place? Who were the, who were the, who were the people holding the Israelites captive? Egypt, right? And so there is like 1.7 million Jews or so um, held captive in Egypt. Now, when they were captive for 400 long years, they lost their national identity. They lost a lot of their religion. They lost so much of everything. The diaspora was when they were originally scattered away from their homeland. Then in 70 AD, during the life of Paul, the Romans came and completely crushed and conquered and destroyed Israel. The, the temple, the high priest, all of it was gone. In fact, modern Judaism cannot be practiced like ancient Judaism because the temple was not built in Israel and they don't have a high priest. It was so destroyed in 70 AD that it changed, it changed Judaism forever. So from 70 AD, and track with me, till 1948, May 14th. I don't know how many years that is. It's like 1900 and something years. It's a long time, right? So from 70 AD to... May 14th, 1948, it's a long time, there was no place called Israel. But if you know the story of World War II and what happened is in uh, May 14th, 1948, the UN regathered the group of Israel because we felt terrible about what Hitler did to the, German, uh, did to the Jews. And he re we regathered the Jews from around the entire world being scattered around the world and recreated the state of Israel and regave them a national identity and a place to live and a homeland, right? In 1914, in the Encyclopedia of, uh, the Encyclopedia of Britannica, um, there was uh, an interesting article that said that the, the, the Jews will never be a people no more and that the Hebrew language is dead and no one will speak it. And now we have bunch of people speaking and learning Hebrew, and we actually have recreated the place of Israel. Man, the Jews have gone through a lot of things. Then you add on top of that that they have been the most persecuted group in human history. Started with the Egyptians, and then some other people you've probably never even heard of. The Amorites, the Syrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And more recently, the Germans. Man, they've gone through it, right? And when you think about it, it's actually a miracle. Um, Louis Fourteenth asked a mathematician and a famous Christian um, in the 14th century, I believe, a man named Blaise Pascal. He said, dude, 
why do you, like, you're a smart man. Why do you believe in miracles? And Blaise Pascal pointed to the Jews. He's like, dude, they keep coming back. It's wild. Like, like <laughs> I'm dead serious. It's literally said. He's like, the Jewish people prove to me that there's a God because he's performing miracles with these people who keep getting squashed every few hundred years and somehow keep coming back. But history is littered with people you've never even heard of or, or uh, the mighty powers that were up all throughout human history that have gotten squashed and they're, they're dead. Like the people groups, are the Mayans, like all, like all of these, the, the, the stuff, right? But the, the Jews keep coming back. It's God's provision over them. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the next thing you need to know is, uh, you don't really need to know this, but whatever, here we are. Um, I'm not doing sermons, I'm doing exegetical teaching. Dispensationalism and replacement theology. What? Okay. Uh, dispensationalism is the idea, and replacement theology, they're just interchangeable words, is the idea that, um, that God is now done with Israel because they have rejected him, and so he has rejected them. Now, I don't actually believe that. Historically, if you were to ask me, has, have Christians replaced the, uh, Israel? I would actually say yes. But in some of the study I've been, uh, studies I've been recently doing, I realize that there's tons of prophecies still in Scripture that he has for the Jews, and they haven't come to fruition yet. And God is a God that always keeps his promises, so what does that mean for you and me? It means, well, then he must still have a, a plan for some of them, right? And so with that, I want you to go with me to uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. Um, it says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Gentiles, it's not, it, it just means non-Jewish people. So if you, if you weren't one of the two or three people that raised your hands, you're a Gentile. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much will their full inclusion mean? So God is using the Jews' present rejection of Christ to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. Then he will use the rest of the world, the Gentiles' reception, acceptance of who Jesus is, to eventually bring the Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's forecasted in the ends of days that the Jews will come back to Jesus. It's kind of wild, but think of it in this way. There are 7 million Jews that live today. He's one estimate, 7 million. Also interesting enough that the Judaism, Judaism has one of the highest concentrations of atheism in the entire world. Because to be Jewish does, it means more than just to adhere to certain um, theological presuppositions, uh, assertions about God. You can be ethnically Jewish and national, nationalistically if you live in, or born in Israel, right? It's different than Christianity, which is an adherence to certain... You're not born a Christian. You have to adhere to certain worldviews and things like that, right? So there are 7 million Jews today, and then there are close to 3 billion followers of Jesus Christ. 3 billion, right? Now, what, this makes, what makes this all crazy is all of this, 3 billion people in Christianity, is built wholly and completely on the back of Judaism. And then we have the central person of Christianity, Jesus Christ, and he is the promised Jewish Savior and Messiah, He's Jewish. So all over the world right now, you have billions, billions of Christians who love the Old Testament, billions of Christians who love the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jonah, uh, uh, Nahum, all these people. Then you have billions of, of Christians who love the patriarchs, the forefathers that created Judaism in the place called Israel, and then billions of Christians who love God the Father as he personally revealed himself in Exodus 3 as Yahweh. And then you talk to modern Jews, and they're like, yeah, who cares? modern-day Christians love Judaism more than modern-day Jews do. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can't be a Christian and be anti-Semitic. It's, it, it's completely and wholly incompatible. And so we ask the question, okay, if God still has a part of his heart for the Jewish people, then what's God's plan to bring salvation to these Jews? And the answer is wildly simple. You. 
Follow with me in the next verse. It says this, verse 13 and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles insomuch that as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Mm, I'm going to pause real quick. All right. How much time do we have? Oh, here we are. Okay. Uh, okay, it says, it says here it's saying, um, uh, it says, insomuch that, that I, this is Paul speaking, am an apostle to the Gentiles. This is Paul speaking. Paul, super Jew, had a cape probably, all right? Like he was the mightiest of Jews that ever, ever Jewed, all right? So uh, <laughs> I'll give you an example, right? So he was trained under G- uh, 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 Gamil, and he was like the, the, the most famous rabbi of the life and time of Jesus Christ, right? And um, he was a rabbinic Jew. He was a rabbi. He was on the Pharisee class, which was like the top Jew. Um, and he was brilliant. Most scholars believe he, he had the equivalent of three PhDs today. In fact, maybe the most intelligent person walking on the planet during the lifetime of Jesus Christ, other than obviously Jesus Christ himself. Um, pretty well, right? An extraordinarily intelligent man. And he was supposed to be the apostle that means the, the person that brings the news to the Gentiles. And then you have Peter. Peter, it says in Galatians and Acts, was to the apostle to the Jews. It seems like that should be Paul's job. Paul's a super Jew, wears a cape. He should be talking to the Jewish people. Then you have Peter, who's probably was most of his life illiterate, was a fisherman, and he's supposed to talk to the Jews. It's kind of counterintuitive. And well, I, at your stage of life, I hear a lot of young adults, they're trying to figure out, well, what is God calling me to? Like, what, what, why does my heart beat inside my chest? God's call on your life is often counterintuitive. See, what made sense was for Paul to be an apostle to the Jews. What made sense for Peter is to be the apostle to the non-Jews. It's kind of the air he breathed. And then God had him switch. Uh, Moses, he calls him in Exodus uh, 3. <laughs> and he says that, hey, I want you to be my mouthpiece, my spokesperson to Israel and to, and to Egypt to let my people go. And he's like, me? I stutter. He legit had a speech problem. You, I'm supposed to be your mouth, God? It's counterintuitive. Or my story, right? Like, my, part of my story is I grew up with a learning disability, specifically in memorization and articulation after I read something, which is ironic because that's what I do for a living now, right? But the way in which God reveals his purpose and plan for our lives is often counterintuitive. Why? So you, so, so you can't rest in your own gift set. You have to lean upon him, right? And that's what's happening with Paul and Peter, Moses, and even me, right? And so it continues and says this, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews highlight jealous and thus save some of them. Here's my question. Is jealousy a bad thing? Is jealousy a good thing? Interesting. <laughs> Can it potentially be both? Oh, let's pray. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll give you an analogy. Um, imagine that I hear my wife, Chelsea, planning uh, this, this date night, right? And so she's been talking about it for weeks. She's planning to go to some incredible place, do a, uh, go to this expensive restaurant that you can't afford, and then, I don't know, later go to the movies and, like, watch fireworks at Disneyland or something like that, right? Some elaborate, awesome date night or whatever, right? And so for weeks, man, she's been planning it. She's been telling me about it. She bought an outfit for it, a bunch of other things. And so Friday night comes. I get home from work, and uh, I get home a little early. And um, as I walk into the, the, the house, I see that she's dressed and ready to go. And um, I'm about to put, I drop my bag and I'm about to head into our bedroom to you know, change, to put on something nicer to go on this date. And uh, before I can get to our bedroom door, she kisses me and she just says, hey, I'll be home late. And as I turn to see as she's heading out the door, I see that there's another man she's walking towards in a car that she's about to spend the evening with. I would be in prison. No, I'm just kidding. I would be jealous, right? <laughs> I, I'd be throwing hands, right? Everyone's getting one, right? Uh, <laughs> on a serious note, right? I would be jealous because the man in that scenario is taking my, my rightful place as her husband. 
right? And so in that moment, I would experience a righteous jealousy. The truth is jealousy can be both bad and good, but righteous jealousy happens when someone is in your rightful place. What, did, what happened when I said, on our wedding day, I looked her in the eye and I said, I do. And she said, I do. What does that mean? I don't to everyone else. The exclusivity of that moment is beautiful, right? And so I, as her husband, have a rightful place in her life. She, as my wife, has a rightful place in my life. So when God says that he's a jealous God, it's because for the Jewish people for centuries, now he made covenants. What's the number one illustration that God uses in Scripture to talk about the type of relationship that he has with mankind? He calls the church his bride. It's a marriage. It's a covenant. It's a contract. It's a promise. It's a rightful place in my life, vice versa. And so God's plan begins with the Jews becoming jealous of the type of relationship that we get to have with their promised Jewish king. That's his plan, actually. And the more and more the Jews realize the type of relationship that we can have with God, and the Bible doesn't tell us when, but it says when the fullness of the Gentiles is reached. We don't know what that is. When the fullness of the non-Jewish world is reached, it says the rapture happens. If you don't know what the rapture is, don't Google it. Um, uh, I guess I'll quickly tell you what the rapture is. At some point, in the, in the, hopefully not now, but at some point, maybe now, I don't know, uh, some point tomorrow, I'm kidding, at some point in the future, God is going to just take believers from the world. That is the moment that I think that the Jews, how much do we want to go into this? <laughs> We're here. Okay, so all the, all the Christians are gone. Boom. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and all of a sudden the followers of Jesus dip, all right, Repent, all right? Like, 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 like <laughs> get on your hands and knees, all right? Uh, but if, like, you had, a, like, a, like, a, like, a mom that's, like, you know, has a relationship with Jesus and you're not a believer and all of a sudden she just, like, vanishes, you know, like, start praying, all right? Um, and so I think it's at that moment that the Jews have an opportunity. I don't think they're raptured from uh, uh, the rapture, the, the three and a half years of torment, um, but I think that in that season, in the book of Revelation, it teaches us that there's gonna be two prophets that come to witness to the world and actually to the Jewish people, I think the two prophets are going to be a man named Ezekiel and a man named Moses. Ezekiel, in Jewish history, um, in literature, is seen as the highest prophet who was forecasting the future. And then we have Moses, who was the person who brought the law, the Ten Commandments. And so I think it's going to be those two people that are going to witness, and they're going to make all of the Jewish people in Israel turn towards Jesus Christ at the end of days. That seems to be what is going to happen. And we'll talk about more of that maybe in, in a second. But back to what I was saying maybe a second earlier. There seems to be this thing where the fullness of the Gentiles is reached, the non-Jewish world is reached, where God takes his children, takes his family away from the world. And it's in this moment that they become jealous of the type of relationship that, that we Christians have with their actual Jewish God. And they, want, they become jealous of that because they realize the type of access that the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself has given us to God. We can, for example, in the book of Matthew chapter 5 or uh, in Luke 11, it says, it teaches us how to pray. And one of the very first words was, um, our father. That would break a Jewish person's mind to address God as dad. In fact, the name that God had revealed himself was Yahweh. Whenever you see in your Old Testament, pick any book in the Old Testament, and if you ever see the word, oh, okay, perfect, number. Numbers, um, 511 says this, and the Lord, it's in capital. That's actually the word Yahweh. They replaced it 3,000 years ago with Lord Adonai because they were so fearful of saying Yahweh improperly as to address God incorrectly that we have lost to history actually how to say the name Yahweh. 
That type of reverence and respect is, we use God's name as a cuss word. You stub your toe and the first thing is, you know, like, like it's just wild, right? So to address this mighty, perfect, and awesome God as dad, it's unbelievable. And that's the message that Jesus came to bring, that you can know God in such a deeper way than you could ever even fathom. And so that's what God is doing to the Gentile world, that he's getting the non-Jewish people to fall in love with this Jewish God. And then hopefully with making the Jews jealous so that they put him in the rightful place in their lives once again. Verse 15. Man, we got three more pages. What time is it? I've been speaking for 40 minutes already. We're going to do this very quick. Buckle up. Okay. Um, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The reality is, because of Israel's rejection, the gospel has now penetrated every nation on the planet. I'll say it this way. The riches of the gospel come to every single nation. Now, the riches of the gospel are not necessarily material prosperity, but freedom, right? The human spirit, which I guess we'd say was made free. It is a fact today that everywhere that the gospel is preached, you have a free people. But think where it is rejected, where it is resisted, and where it is ignored. North Korea, Russia, China, whatever it may be. You have people that drift into violence, anarchy, exploitation, and tyranny. This is because human freedom comes by, by, by the means of the gospel. We live, or I say, we and, I say, we and the rest of the world ought to give thanks uh, to God for the riches that have come our way because of the blindness of God's original family, the Israelites. And so Paul's argument here is, is that we have benefited so much from Israel's rejection. Can you imagine the benefits that come when God decides some way and somehow at some future date to combine both the Jewish family and the Christian family and all of them come under belief in him? So our question is, okay, what is God doing with all of these non-Jewish people, us? And then how, how can God bring us into his family without being Jewish? Verse 16 begins to answer this. And he uses some like really ancient um, analogies, obviously, but I'm going to try to make sense of this. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, as if the root is holy, so are the branches. So this has actually to do with offerings made in the Jewish temple centuries ago or millennia ago. Um, they would bring a pile of dough. Um, our offerings are a type of dough too, <laughs> different type of dough, but hopefully a pile nonetheless. Um, Paul's argument is that if the first handful of this dough was acceptable to God, then it would make sense that the rest of the handful, the rest of what's in that dough, would also be um, accepting to God. Now, it's a metaphor. Who's the dough represented here? It's actually Father Abraham, who's the father of the Israelites. His argument goes as followed. Abraham was accepted by God. Abraham was the first Jew, if you didn't know that, okay? Started the nation of Israel. Then it would make sense that his descendants, too, would eventually be accepted by God, right? Which would be all of the Jewish people. Now, I am uncomfortable to say that Jewish people today are saved because I, 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 I'm uncomfortable making any wiggle room when Jesus says, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no name given to mankind, all of mankind, um, other than the name of Jesus uh, 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 to be saved. So I, I'm uncomfortable making any other loopholes. Um, but it does seem that in some future day, there's a prophecy that Jews will turn towards Christ. So I think these are written diachronically, not synchronically. What? Okay. Diachronically means for a future event. Synchronically means for this current situation. I do not think that modern Jews can be saved. But I think there is a future date in which those ones that are during the time of that life have the capacity to be saved. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, I had some notes on this, but it prophesies that, that I'll do the recap really quick. Okay, so Ezekiel gets a prophecy 
uh, an insight, a vision from God. And in this, he's at an interaction with God where he's supposed to speak to a valley. And in the valley, he sees tons of dead bodies. And they're all dry bones. There's a song by Lauren Daigle and Brandon Lake and all that that's, about, that's written about Ezekiel 37. And so anyways, um, he sees this valley and there are a bunch of dead and dry bones. And God says, speak to the dry bones and give them life. And he's like, I can't do that. Only you can. He's like, but I'm going to allow you to do that. So he does it and all of these bodies begin to materialize with muscle and flesh and whatever, and acne, I don't know, but they all, they, all, <laughs> they all start growing in some sense of the way. And what this is, it's actually a prophecy, and it's a vision of eventually a resurrection or spiritual rebirth of the Jewish people. I think that in Ezekiel 37 and in Romans eleven sixteen, that's what's being talked about here, a future spiritual resurrection of the Jewish people. Next, and finally, Paul gives us a beautiful example of an olive tree. Um, I'm going to read this very quickly. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now share in the nursing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. You were broken off because of their unbelief, the Jewish people's unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fearful. Um, still have two pages. I will do this in two minutes. Uh, okay, so in the ancient world, uh, the olive tree was very important to your life and family. You would use olive oil for cooking and to light your house and sell for profit and things like that. And so the reality was if your family owned a good olive tree, a productive olive tree that continued to bear olive fruit, it could bless your family for hundreds. In some cases, olive trees can grow or can live for 1,500 years. So imagine because great-great-great-great-great-aunt Becky had this good olive tree, it's now blessing you and your family 1,500 years later. That's pretty wild to think about. So what's the illustration that he's trying to use here? He's using that Israel is the trunk, the olive trunk that you have been grafted into, and that we get the blessings of their faithfulness, even if they aren't currently being faithful. But because part of this ancient olive tree, Judaism, is alive, new branches can actually be grafted in. Now, what does this mean? Well, I'm not a farmer, but from my weak understanding of all of this, is oftentimes there's parts of trees that die and parts of the trunk that still are, 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 are rooted in the soil and producing nourishment to the branches and, and, and fruit and vines and whatever else grows from the top. What ends up happening is a farmer will find the ones that are dead and pull them off and they will find a young branch somewhere else, grab it, and literally duct tape it. Sometimes they put a plastic bag over it, and it can be grafted back in. And so because of this branch that's young now, it can be grafted into something that's strong, that has an ancestry uh, uh, strength, um, and has a fullness, it can now experience new life because it's being grafted into something that's old and strong. And that's the image of Christianity today that there were still, and it's called a faithful remnant, the people that did turn over to Jesus Christ that were originally Jews. Nicodemus is one. Joseph of Arimathea is one. These are the people that helped um, uh, uh, bury Jesus' body who were Pharisees like Paul. Paul is one, whatever it may be, that we get to experience the blessings of something that took centuries to build because you can become grafted into God's family in this sense. But maybe more practical for you and I, and here's where we'll land tonight, um, and it, hopefully this gives you enough to talk about. Um, I've learned three things about olive trees that I thought were interesting. Number one, there's these things called wild, wild olive trees. Wild olive trees suck. They, they grow in the wild, and because olive trees are pretty fickle uh, uh, trees, 
often they need to be kind of not surrounded by much. And if they're growing in the wild, they're, number one, probably not going to grow in the most fertile ground uh, that's been cared and cultivated by a farmer or a, a vine dresser is what they're called. Um, and so it's not going to bear really any fruit. Um, and it's not going to be pruned in any sense of the way. And so what often happens is that these wild branches is they're completely worthless because they produce no fruit. Scripturally, this is equal to the unbeliever. They can produce no, uh, Galatians 5.22 is the, the fruit of the Spirit. They can produce none, none of that because they don't have God's Spirit inside them. And the Bible calls these individuals, take it up with Jesus, not me, worthless. The second is the dead branch. This is somebody that wants to be grafted into the family of God, but not cultivated and pruned. In other words, these are people who are identifying themselves as followers of Jesus, grafted in the family of God, and produce no fruit. If you go on their TikToks, their Instagrams, their Facebooks, or their MySpaces, <laughs> or whatever, you will immediately say that there's nothing about them that remotely looks like Jesus. In the book of Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, it says, for these people are the type of people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Just take a window into their life. The only thing Christian about them is they put Philippians 4.13 in their Instagram bio. That's it, right? But these are the type of people that when they get to heaven, God's gonna go, you fooled yourself. <laughs> Peace, you know, like uh, high five, but no, like <laughs> sad, but that's the reality of this, right? Or in the book of Mark, it says, these people will come to me on their day of appointment and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? And they insert a bunch of other church things that they did. And God goes, Dude, you made an image of me that wasn't real. Remember that moral therapeutic deism thing? Remember that you bought that book with the pastor's face on it? Dude, he was teaching you a God that wasn't real. You didn't care to know the real God. You cared to create one in your own image that just you thought was kneeling to your benefit. Right? And so the dead branch is the type of person that wants to kind of play the church game without actually be, like, surrendering their life to Jesus' lordship. And then finally is the third one, which is the cultivated olive tree. This is the person that has submitted themselves to God's correction. Now, this is a, a challenging position to be in. It's the one biblical one, but as a part of this, it's important for me to say as we use this analogy. There could be some of you who are following God right now, strictly in your life, and your life is actually getting a little more challenging since you've decided to put on Team Jesus. It is important that you understand this, that as long as you are following Jesus, he is not punishing you. He's pruning you. It would be unjust for God to punish you and Jesus Christ. Jesus got the punishment so you could get the love. He got the separation so you could get the connection. And so when believers experience difficulty this side of heaven, it's not because of punishment. It's because of pruning. God is removing something, an idol from your life, a person from your life for your benefit. Because if that person remains in your life or that opportunity is in your life or that addiction or whatever it may be, thought pattern, whatever it is, it's more harmful than hurtful. And God's loving and wants to remove those things from your life. And so, I guess as we end today, um, the question I have is, what of the three branches are you? Are you the wild unbeliever? <laughs> Which the Bible looks at and says, like, I have no purpose for you right now because you haven't allowed me to intervene in your life and start cultivating and growing you. Or number two, are you the dead branch that will eventually be removed because you lack spiritual fruit and all? In fact, go with me to Galatians chapter five. Galatians five. Uh, 22. All right. All right, remember, so we use the Bible, not as binoculars, to look at the sins of other people, not as scopes to just shoot judgment at people, but a mirror. Let these words be a mirror to you. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What is love? Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. The most important part of that is to bring that person to a right standing before God. What is culture's definition of love? To accept people as they are. Jesus would accept people as they are, but would also ask them to change. Uh, the woman at the, uh, uh, we could use the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. She's caught sleeping with someone who's not her husband. Does Jesus go, high five, sick, just cool? No, he goes, look around, who condemns you? No one, me either, but go and sin no more. Love, objectivity, is to move people into righteousness, a right standing with God. What is the next word? Um, it says joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and obedient to God's revealed word, gentleness, self-control, self-control. How many of us lack self-control on Friday night? Because you're drinking. How many of us lack self-control with our boyfriends and girlfriends? Or how much of us lack self-control behind closed doors on Google? Against such thing, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. So the dead, the dead branch that'll be removed because you lack fruit. Do you, as a believer, if you are a believer, or self-professing believer, are any of these evident in your life? If the answer is no, you could be this person. And the last one is the cultivated one who's producing some fruit and is actively surrendering. The last thing I'll say is this. In the book of John, chapter 15, verse 5, it teaches us how we can grow. It says this, Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, how you and I become the cultivated one <laughs> is by active surrenderance to God's lordship and mas uh, mastery over our lives and continue to surrender things to him and say, use all that I have in my life and take anything, God, that you please out of my life because I trust you as the ultimate vine dresser. So with that, let me pray for you guys. Um, and uh, I spoke for 55 minutes, that's cool. <laughs> and uh, I'll get you guys to your groups. Father, today we thank you. Um, and God, we admit, Lord, that so many of us, so many different times in our lives, want you just as our Savior and not as our Master. But Lord God, we repent of that. And Lord, with your eyes, we ask that you'd help us be cognizant of the things, God, that we need to put under your Lordship and mastery over our lives and in our lives. And so, Father, today would you speak to us continually? We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, hallelujah. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.